Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the worst advice that you've ever been given for writing? And what was their name specifically and address? And tell us everything about the person. <laughs> Never worry about making money from your art. Just do your art and maybe the money will come. And I tend to feel quite poorly about that type of advice. I literally have no other skills. <laughs> you have this great story about how you got published. If you want to dive into that for our viewers. Brandon Sanderson said that this was the most Brandon Sanderson book yet. I want to hear what you thought about that. Yeah, you know, like I was tickled pink <laughs> we're his student and then becoming more friends with him relative levels of our careers have stayed the same because now i am the quite a successful author and brandon is 50 times more successful than i am and so there's always been this like level of slight intimidation there i'll be totally honest yeah my novellas per hour make me a lot more money than my novels do. Whoa. I don't think I do that well romance. Epic fantasy, a lot of us are awkward neckbeards, you know? We don't, <laughs> we don't know how to make this stuff work. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Two to Ramble, episode number 54. Five, four, that's a big one. And this is your host, Richard, over here. And this is your other host. That's me, Austin. And we have a very, very special guest today. We are absolutely honored to have author Brian McClellan on the podcast. Brian is most well-known for his two trilogies, The Powder Mage and Gods of Blood and Powder. But as of last year, he stepped outside the realm of gunpowder and ventured into the realm of glass. His new series, aptly titled The Glass Immortals, has the first book, which is called In the Shadow of Lightning. Now, this book takes place in a world where magic is finite, and now it's running out. But only the very elite, in this case the powerful guild families, have this knowledge. And this finite magic, known as God Glass, is forged in different ways. You've got Wit Glass, which makes your mental capacity smarter. You have... Uh, certain god glass that augments your physical strength and you even have day's glass which gives you a high it's basically fantasy marijuana and so this this book has all sorts of great magic and dives into a very incredible world and it follows some characters there's a, det a detective a soldier known as a breacher but our main character is Demir and he's a self-exiled outlaw who is now has to return to the to the place Osa and his mother just died. He has to solve that. He has to solve why is magic running out? How do I figure that? And it's just chaotic. Now, Brian has a whole bunch of other novellas and a bunch of writing. He writes a lot, blah, 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 whatever. But you know what Brian also does that I have a serious moral problem with, Richard? What's that? He has a competitor podcast. He is the enemy. Oh. He has a podcast called Page Break with Brian McCullen, and he's trying to just take our viewers from our very hands. And we don't appreciate it, but Brian will welcome you begrudgingly. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Of course, of course. And I want to start right off with your podcast, actually, because looking into how you started your podcast, we'll get into a ton of writing, I promise. But with, with your podcast, you started it more as a you don't want to give writing advice or tips. There's plenty of those out there. You, you seem to have started it from a standpoint that, you know, comedians get on the pod, they talk about their lives and hobbies. 
So I want to get right from the get-go and talk about your hobbies. I know you're a big gamer, for example. Like, what game are you playing now, and what, are, are you loving it? Oh, man. I uh, I do. I game way too much. It's uh, It tends to be my stress relief. You know, like a lot, a lot of people, like, come home from work and watch TV for four hours kind of thing. Um, I'm very much a... Uh, uh, to play video games um and and i kind of jump around in genres i uh i did a full playthrough actually i didn't actually beat it i always uh but uh cyberpunk 2077 um i did that one uh over m- most of uh, february i think um and uh but i i really enjoyed it that was fun but I, i'm normally a very um i like survival games i like uh, uh city builders kind of thing um i I spent uh last weekend i spent the entire weekend playing um oxygen not included which is a a goofy little um kind of survival city builder sort of thing um valheim is one of my favorite games ever um i did a massive playthrough with a bunch of my old high school friends uh over right after their new expansion came out we played for a good two months and that was what we did like almost every day uh so yeah i i don't know i jump around a lot with video games um i kind of i I, i'm one of those bizarre people i like everybody plays games in a different way um and how they enjoy it and like i've I've got a friend who um who tries to 100 percent every single game he plays um you know he gets like all the all the trophies and stuff on playstation and stuff like that um i play games until they start to get boring you know, I'll, I'll, I'll love a game. And then like I did with this with cyberpunk, I, <laughs> I, I played it almost to completion. And then one morning I just woke up and said, I don't really want to play anymore. <laughs> and so I didn't beat the game. Um, you know, part of that was, I, I know that there's like a big expansion supposed to be coming sometime this year. And I thought, figured I'll get back to it then. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I love games. It's just, like I said, it's the way I unwind you know, I kind of do, I like, I like the mindless puzzle nature of a lot of like city builders, especially. Um, it it kind of takes me away from what I do for a living, which is trying to construct narratives. Um, and, and why I never finish RPGs because it feels a little like work because the, the, the climax is always really story heavy. And I'm like, eh, I don't really want the story. I just want to go around and stab bad guys. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I do. I, I love games. Has there been any kind? Is there been any video game that's inspired any type of story that you wanted to write? Oh man, um, maybe. I honestly, I try not to think too much about kind of work when I'm playing games. Um, you know, occasionally I'll have this fantasy of going and working for like a video game company for a few years, um, you know, doing narrative development stuff for them. But it always kind of that, that fantasy never lasts longer than three or four days. And then I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'd enjoy that. (laughs) Um, You know, maybe someday I'd do a little contract work for a video game company or something like that, which would be good. But, uh, but no, I, uh, I vaguely related uh, when, when I first got Promise of Blood, when the contract first came through and I was speaking with my editor for the first few times, um, you know, she, the book was already finished. You know, when you sell a first book, it's almost always got to be finished. And so I went to my editor and we were already discussing covers and things like that. And she said, give me ideas for covers. You know, what's in your imagination? You know, just throw stuff at me. I probably won't use it, but I'll just spitball. And uh, and the thing I told her was the promo work for Skyrim. 
Um, I don't know if you guys ah. remember that, but it was the guy with the horn helmet on a mountain peak with the dragon tail up around like his leg or something like that. Um, and I said, like, this is super cool. Like, this is something I think it can, it had come out pretty recently. Um, and, uh, and I'd love you to do something like that. And, you know, we didn't get super far from that with the lone character, um, sitting in kind of a dark area. And, uh, I mean, you can see over my shoulder, over this shoulder, um, you know, from the blood. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that, that vaguely related to your question. Well, no, I, I absolutely loved the cover. I, I will say for me, I, I saw the cover in the Barnes and Nobles, and that's what made me pick out the book personally. So, and I found just in the whole genre, it's realistic characters, like realistic art, art for a book cover typically doesn't look as good. And it's yeah. very difficult, but I thought yours was particularly well done. I think especially because the shadow covers the face makes it far more appealing. Well, I um I kind of agree with you. I mean, I don't want to badmouth Orbit's art department because they're awesome and I love them. Um, mm-hmm. But they, the, especially around the time my books came out, they were really leaning into the, uh, the photorealistic. Um, they would do photo shoots of a actual person and then put that onto a digitally created background. Um, and that's what they did for my Powder Mage books, the first trilogy. And, uh, and honestly, they did it for a lot of other books, and I very rarely like it. Mm-hmm. I, it usually feels kind of crummy to me. Um, and uh, But yeah, I, honestly, I, I love how my books turned out. <laughs> I, maybe everybody says that. But. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, relatively recently, do you have any thoughts on the whole AI art debate? Because that's been brewing lately, especially with, I, I believe it was Christopher Poloni, his, his book had that AI art situation that occurred and of course you're aware of that what are you what are your thoughts on that oh man i mean that's it's such a tough thing to talk about because it gets uh it like because i'm not an artist you know like i Mm. uh, i'm an author um and and if you ask the same exact question about ai writing books uh, i've got a million opinions that i think (laughs) are valid because i do this for a living um when you get into the ai art stuff it's you know like it can it can really fire up people, this whole conversation. Yeah. Um, like the the thing with um, Polini's book, uh, I, I don't get, I don't tend to get too much into the weeds on these things, you know, like the internet debates and stuff like that. But just from a, like a, a lay person's, like it, it seemed to me like they just used some like background stuff that happened to be ai generated which honestly that doesn't seem like a big deal it's like it feels to me like just doing stock art which you know they grab stock art for all of my you know covers that have the digital stuff Uh. you know you can see behind me like the flags and the cannon and all of that stuff that some of it is created by an artist a lot of it is stock art um yeah i don't actually know which is which um but uh but that feels very much like the same moral level as using stock art um now if they're going fully ai developed covers that 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 gets a little bit trickier because then there's nobody working on it um no human working on it 
from a very capitalist perspective, fantastic. We can cut out any more cost. But from like an emotional perspective, you're like, man, I, I, I kind of want my art to be created by people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't know. It's it's a tough thing, um, and 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 I have no blame for artists for getting fired up about the whole. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't I I don't think that you should like go after like Tor's art department because of something like that because it like I said it felt very stock art it's just a normal thing that they've been doing for decades, um, and uh, but yeah it's it's a tricky debate it's a tricky thing to kind of uh, like I've talked a whole bunch on Page Break about this the uh, I don't know if. Actually, those episodes might not be out yet. Um, ah, but uh, a little sneak preview, sneak peek. Yeah, they might. I think because I, I've got one. You know, as of I don't know when this will go out, but but from our recording right now, um, I think on Tuesday I'm, I have a conversation with Django Wexler about. Uh, we talk a bit about AI, um, and then I think next month I'm talking with Ken Liu uh, a, a lot about AI because um, he's a futurist uh, and. Um, yeah, it is. It's it's a very tricky thing to kind of figure out where you stand as an artist and trying to look into the future and see how if that's really going to completely destroy your industry or whether it's kind of a flash in a pan for a brief period of time. Nobody has any idea. Where do you think the uh, AI's use will come into play with art uh, authors themselves? I mean, <laughs> I've got a buddy of mine, um, one of my old high school friends who uh, he talks about this AI stuff all the time. He's super obsessed with it. He yeah. loves fiddling with all the free things online. Um, he's constantly reading about the new developments that have been made public. Uh, it, it's interesting because his kind of uh, opinion seems to be as much fun as he's had it having from it. The, the the biggest effect that AI will have on our lives um, is that it'll make a lot of things easier um, in terms of uh, like uh, like busy work, honestly, like digital busy work, having an AI write an email for you, that sounds fantastic. Right. Um, you're just like the, these things that are, are little constructs in our life that we have to spend time on that really don't require you to have that much of a personal touch. If you're just writing, you're jotting off a quick email to somebody who just needs to know some information and you can have your AI write it from, you know, you, you put in a few words and then suddenly the AI just does it for you. Um, and you give it a quick edit. That sounds great. I would love that to be part of my kind of business life. Right. Mm-hmm. But again, that's probably not exactly, what you were asking with the whole uh how's effect an author thing honestly like i said before i have no idea uh i feel like i feel like the ai with writing a a completed novel probably a lot more complex than an ai creating art um and i don't i'm not saying that to like say that art is less in any way um yeah like digital art but but I think like creating a picture is probably a lot easier to train an AI to do than creating an emotional narrative arc. Um, and with everything feeling right to it. So, I mean, I hope that I will be dead before it destroys my industry. Um, and uh, hopefully that won't be soon. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
yeah, so so I don't know. Who the, who the heck knows what that's going to look like over the next you know two decades? Yeah. So as part of your your business side and your personal side, something that I found really interesting is that you don't read as much as you used to, being an epic fantasy author. So that hobby, how is how is your writing affected the enjoyability of reading for you? Oh man. Um, <laughs> This is one of those things I, I genuinely, and I, I talk about this on Page Break a bunch, because it genuinely bothers me that I, when I was young, when I probably until the time I was about 23, 24, um, I read voraciously anything I could get my hands on. Um, I just powered through massive books, huge series, everything. And then right about the time that writing became my career, right about when I was 25 or so, when it, I just, I found it less enjoyable to read. Um, I suddenly, it was like, oh, this feels like homework to me. Like this doesn't, this doesn't feel as enjoyable to me anymore. Um, and I think, honestly, I think that's to my detriment. Um, you know, reading, a lot of authors will tell you that they read to get inspired. And reading does inspire me. It, you know, when I when I can get myself to sit down and uh, and read through a book, I often come out the other side saying, "Oh man, they they do some great things with this narrative device. They they've got a cool character that I would love to steal little bits of and sprinkle into one of my books." You know, there's there's lots of ways to be inspired by reading um, as a writer, but but like I said, it kind of started to feel like homework, and so I just over the years, I've kind of stopped doing it. And and every so often I'll pick something up and I'll, uh, like last year I, I picked up, I read the first couple of, I reread um, the first couple of uh, Malaysian Book of the Fallen um, with, um, uh, with uh, I, I just forgot the title of the first book. Um, uh, the Garden, Gardens of the Moon. Gardens of the, yeah. Gardens of the Moon. Um, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then recently I, I, I picked up and was, doing a little rereading of the old Conan, the barbarian, um, mm. the, the, or the, the original ones. And, uh, you know, so like I, occasionally I'll do some rereading. I'll try to look for some inspiration and stuff, but man, I, I really struggle with making myself read anymore. And, uh, and, and really, I, I kind of wish that that wasn't the case. I, I, I miss reading. I miss, you know, just, taking literally like three days straight and laying in bed, you know, you know, with that way you do when you're a teenager where you like, where you contort yourself into the weirdest positions. you like, your legs are up on the wall and your, your head's hanging off the edge of the bed and you're trying to like, not let pieces of you fall asleep because you don't want to stop reading. Um, I, I genuinely miss that kind of thing. Is there any particular author that it's a little easier for you to pick up their book? Um, I mean, the, the, the ones that were my favorites right at the start of my writing career, um, that would probably be Steven Erickson, Joe Abercrombie. Um, I love Robert Jackson Bennett. He's fantastic. Um, but, uh, but even those guys, I don't pick them up as much as I used to. And it, it, it's not great. Uh, it's at some point I keep telling myself, okay, you're going to start catching up on the really great stuff that you know has been coming out. Um, I always feel bad because I, when I first started page break, I told myself, Brian, if you mention page break once more on this podcast, <laughs> so help me God, everyone's We're going losing over there. Everybody. Sorry to ruin your train of thought. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Uh, 
when I first started Page Break, I, I told myself, okay, I'm going to start reading a book by each of these authors that I invite on. And then I just never did it. And I, <laughs> I, you know, like it's, it's one of those things where you kind of want to, but also, man, I, I, I have been stupidly busy the last few years. Mm. I don't feel like I have that like kind of time to throw into that kind of thing. Cause because doing a podcast, as you know, is a fun little hobby. But hmm. holy crap, I have a real job. Yeah. You know, I've got to actually write yeah. the books. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's and again, then when you try to do something, when you say, OK, I'm going to read for my podcast, then suddenly it's homework and you're not enjoying it as much. I see. Um, so uh, so I don't know. I, someday, hopefully, I will really kind of rediscover my love of reading. Um, I know it's in there. Um you know, I still I do listen to occasionally listen to audiobooks, but but almost never fiction. It's always it's always nonfiction. Um, so, yeah, it's it, like I was talking about before with video games, like my unwind time has now become video games. It's just right. that's how I kind of unspool all that creative tension in my brain and kind of let it just seep out into a game and and occasionally i'll put on a podcast when i'm playing something i know really well that i don't really have to focus on you know i'll put on a podcast or i'll put on an, an audiobook or something like that um but yeah it's uh it, it's weird how you kind of change as you get older and um y even like you know i i literally work in the field yeah that i probably should be reading in and i just don't <laughs> Well, with, with your writing process, and so the lack the lack of reading, but writing so much now, how is your approach to when the deadline's coming? Because I know you've talked in the past of if there's no deadline, and you've you've mentioned to to let some of our viewers know, you can't really force yourself to outline. How does your writing style work, and what's the difference when you do have a deadline versus you don't have a deadline? How does that affect your style? Um, I uh. I don't know. It, it kind of depends on kind of where I'm at, uh, kind of, uh, emotionally and, um, kind of physically, uh, it's, it's complicated is the short answer. Um, with deadlines, uh, my, so editors in publishing, because it is a creative work, they're very aware of this. And so editors tend to be reasonably forgiving about deadlines if you give them warning. If you say mm. four months ahead of time, hey, look, I think this book's going to be two or three months late. Your editor generally, they're not going to be a dick about it. They're going to say, okay, well, we'll slot you into the next quarter after, you know, what we had assumed was going to be your publication date. Um, you know, they'll, they'll work with you. Uh, it's when you get to the point where you're three, four years late that then they start saying, hey, you have an actual contract you signed and we're going to have to evoke this clause that lets us out of it and you have to pay us back. Um, th that will eventually happen, uh, but it tends to not be like, like in normal business. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you blow past a deadline and maybe they'll forgive you a week. <laughs> uh, but in publishing, it tends to be a lot nicer, um, a lot more forgiving. Um, you know, I did that with the Powder Mage books. I, I, I tended to always be like three, four months behind everything. Um, and I, honestly, the first couple of books that freaked me out. Uh, but then, you know, I, I kind of got used to working with my editor. I got used to, you know, knowing when to say to her, 
hey, this is late. And her being, mm -hmm. oh, okay, cool. You know, because if you go up and the deadline is tomorrow and you send an email saying, I'm going to be three months late, they're going to be rightfully pissed at you. Right. Uh, you know, like, um, but like right now. So I, uh, I've, I've talked about this a bit online um, and on my podcast that uh, in back in, I think it was September, um, I ended up in the hospital with a previously unknown heart defect um, that required heart surgery. And, uh, and while I was in the heart, in the hospital, my brother died. Um, and so it was a horrible week. Oh, and my wife went in for emergency back surgery the same week. Um, so it, it was a disaster of a week. Uh, with kind of far-reaching emotional implications. And honestly, my editor and my agent were really cool about it. And they they both came back to me and said, look, we're going to take book two of Glass Immortals. We're just going to take it out of production. Um, we're going to take it out of the schedule. You take as much time as you need to finish up, uh, deal with the stuff that you've got going on in your personal life. And then once you've finished the book, hand it in and we'll put you back into the production line. And honestly, that's incredibly nice. It shows on, on my editor's part, it shows that she trusts me to get back to it and get to it, get it done in a, a reasonable amount of time. Um, but also just, you know, it was very kind to for them to say, look, we understand you're going through some shit. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that's like where my current book is, is that, um, like I'm, I'm way behind on it, but thankfully, you know, my professional kind of contacts are being kind about it. And, and I'm, I'm still hoping to have it finished sometime during the spring, fingers crossed. Um, you know, I, I got a glass immortals novella out that I had written last summer. Um, and that's, that'll be out in May. Um, I did a Kickstarter for it in the fall, and um, is that so, the baby one? Yeah, that's Montego. Yeah, Montego. Um, yes, yep, our favorite yep, character, and, by the way, by far. <laughs> yeah. He's he is my favorite side character, and funny enough, he's the character that uh, oh, that has survived all. He's the side character that has survived all iterations of the original book. Because um, yeah. when I when I pitched in the Shadow of Lightning, the original pitch was, I think it was sixty thousand words or something like that. And, uh, and that's what I sold the series off of. And then I ended up completely scrapping it and rewriting it using the same main characters, but with totally different plot lines and stuff like that. And, and baby Montego was like the only side character that survived that. Um, and it, and it was my, uh, my agent who basically said, look, this is, this is the best character that you've got <laughs> going. So you definitely can't lose him. Right. <laughs> I, that, that was actually, uh, when we had uh, your book for our book club, all of the patrons actually said that we'd love to have a novella of Baby Montego. Then we looked it up, it's like, oh, there is, yeah. <laughs> there is one. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's fun. He's uh, he's just a. It's fun. I, I've always uh, every one of my series has a big dude that is enjoyable to write. Uh, you know, like in. Um, in the original, uh, in the original Powder Mage trilogy, you've got Mihaly as the chef. Um, in the second trilogy, um, you've got the Ice Baron. I'm trying to remember if I have another one in the second trilogy. I don't think so. I think it's the Ice Baron. I mean Ben Stike, but he's not like a fat dude. He's just huge. Um, and also, uh, but I, I, I always like having a big fat dude in each of my in yeah. books. Uh, what what was the name of the uh, the friend of Adamat in the first trilogy? 
Oh, do you mean his uh, bodyguard, Sousmith? Yes. Yeah, the yep. big, the boxer. Yeah, the boxer. I I also was thinking of him. He big, strong dude, but just kind of a lovable personality. Just really good, yeah. honorable guy. Yeah. I um. <laughs> so Baby Mondego comes from this uh, very childish place uh, in me from when I was a teenager, and I first saw um, the Matrix. Uh, I had this uh, very dumb daydream of them making like it was like an snl skit in my head of a massive fat dude dodging bullets just like like very <laughs> fluidly moving in the screen like having bullets just shoot past right. him and honestly that is kind of where baby montego comes from because <laughs> <That's> he's <great. laughs> he's in he's impossibly fast he's just massive well i mean he's a he's a sportsman he's basically a sportsman in which a sumo wrestler is you're know, cudgeling is they're more sumo wrestlers are kind of what you're aiming for for these mm. sportsmen and so montego is that but he also you know was a world championship uh, champion that retired and so he's kind of gone to seed you know like he's just he's let himself go totally and uh but he's still this amazing athlete despite you know kind of you know weighing 400 pounds or whatever uh i don't know i just i i love him as a character in every way he's great and yeah. you really do tease the reader there with he's past his prime and still that strong it's like what was he like in his prime <laughs> of primes and, and i know you said in the past you said as for in the shadow of lightning that kizzy was the easiest to write tessa mm. and sorry if i'm saying tessa right is it thessa thessa correct tessa Oh, Tessa? Tessa. Uh, so Kizzy was the easiest. Tessa was the hardest to write, but what makes a character easier or harder to write for you? Um, usually connecting with them, connecting with their narrative, you know, because you each character has to have things that are driving their narrative, right? They have to have, you know, a quest they're going on, whether that is physical or spiritual or mental or emotional or whatever. They have to have something that drives them. And... Um, honestly, like Kizzy was super easy. I, I have often found that my investigative sort of characters are the easiest to do. And maybe that's kind of my childhood love of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but like, like, uh, in the, uh, second Powder Mage series, uh, Mikkel, Mikkel was by far the easiest to write. And honestly, he became the most fun once I like, especially when I, when I got to book two of that series, um, so I, so Kizzy, you know, it's really easy to latch, latch onto. There is a mystery that you have to kind of unfold and, um, and those characters, I don't know, that's really easy for me to do. Um, somebody like Tessa, Tessa, Tessa was really difficult, I think, because her role, I'm really good at writing action stuff. That's like my bread and butter. And I Tessa see. really didn't have any action stuff. You know, she's she is uh, she's not a passive character, but her her work is all kind of like in a workshop or in her head. And that's a lot harder for me to write. I was actually working on one of her plot lines for uh, book two uh, very late last night. And and I, it was it was one of those things where I like I've been trying to like tease out what I'm doing with her um, in a more concrete fashion. And it kind of finally clicked last night. Um, you know, I had a, I had a scene that I had rewritten a couple of times because I wasn't happy with it. And it was like, oh, 
this finally works. Um, and honestly, it's hard to describe like what's different about it, but I think it's that, I think it's the physicality is really easy. You know, like with Kizzy, she is both a physical person, but also she's moving between places. She is unraveling a mystery and fighting bad guys and doing these things all at once. Um, whereas, you know, Tessa's not, you know, taking a knife to anybody. Uh, she's, it's gotta be all, I've gotta make research interesting. And, and that can be difficult. Yeah, you, you really explore the world with Tessa more so than any other character. It's very, very fair to say. And, and oh, yeah. Some, yeah, it's something with your writing process. That, I mean, you mentioned this when you initially had your 60,000 words for In the Shadow of Lightning, uh, but you, you tweeted out in February of this year saying, I've spent the last three months working exclusively on book two of Glass Immortals, mostly exploratory writing and plot fiddling, just did some Scrivener organization, and I'm sitting at 55K words of deleted scenes and 52K words of finished work, which I found fascinating that you as an, a professional author, you're usually deleting just as much as you're actually writing toward the story. What does the end product usually look like of how much stays and how much goes? Well, honestly, that's not normal to me at all. Uh, I, I hate, uh, I hate rewriting it. Mm. Like I've never been an exploratory writer. Like I tend to do most And this is for powder mage for powder mage, uh, all six books. I tended to just do a lot of thinking, um, and, uh, just kind of sitting around puzzle solving in my head until I felt like I had pretty much everything. And then I would just vomit it out. Um, I've never liked the rewriting process. I can do it. It doesn't bother me. I, I, I did. I wrote um, Sins of Empire. Uh, I've told this story a few times, but Sins of Empire, I wrote an entire book. I handed it in and my editor said, this is really crap. And I said, I know. <laughs> and, uh, and she gave me a couple of months to think about it. And, uh, and I came back to her and I said, I think I have to rewrite this from scratch. And she said, oh, thank God. I didn't want to tell you. Um, and, uh, and so I did, but I rewrote all of sins of empire from scratch, getting rid of everything except for like literally just the main characters. They were the same people, but they did everything differently, um, in about four months. And the book I wrote in four months is basically what people read, uh, very few edits on it. Uh, but I had to like, that was the first time I had ever gone through a, holy crap, this entire book sucks. I'm going to just scrap it and write from scratch. And, um, and honestly, I, 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 I can do it, but it sucks. Uh, and, and sins of empire. So, so powder mage, that was the only powder mage book that I really did that with. Um, and then, uh, but with this new series, uh, in the shadow of lightning, I probably have a good 200,000 words of deleted stuff from that. Um, and then the sequel, I'm probably up to 250, 300,000 words of stuff that's unusable. Um, and, uh, just in my Scrivener docs, you know, it's just buried in there, all these scenes that I've written and then gone, no, I didn't like that. Um, but, uh, so I guess my process has changed a bit. I'm not sure if I'm happy with that or not. You know, maybe I'll go back to the old way of uh, of literally not writing for four to six months at a time, just letting it all percolate in my head and then vomiting it out. Uh, but who knows? Uh, at the moment, still tons of rewriting, still you know working through things. 
Um, and uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if I continue to work that way. Um, the book two I had hoped was going to be like back to the Powder Mage version of basically think about it and then write a single good draft that gets some edits. Just um, and that is that is not happening at all. <laughs> well, I, I know it's well with your writing process. Some day, I, here's another tweet for you. We dug into Twitter. We like going into people's Twitters. You know, it's it's a good source of people's thoughts, right? Oh, so right. We, we saw it in March. You said some days your writing time is just hours spent playing word association games with yourself and staring at pages and pages of synonyms trying to come up with the perfect names for fantastical elements. So a lot of days, how many days are actually spent not writing where you're just sitting there going, man, man, (laughs) how often does that happen? So this is a weird thing. And I don't actually know. I think some authors feel this way as well. Um, But this this might be something that's just one of like kind of my weirdness um, in that I uh, I have always had a problem with feeling like if you're not doing the physical act of writing, you're not actually working. Um, and this, honestly, this consumed probably the first six years of my uh, of my time as a professional author. And uh, this idea that that literally the physical writing is what matters. Mm. I, I, I've I've kind of changed that, and I think um, weirdly it has helped me write physically more. Um, is kind of forgiving myself when I have days where no writing happens, um, where I just, you know, I check a few emails uh, and then I play video games all day. And then maybe, you know, after about 10 p.m., I spend, you know, three hours jotting down notes, little things that I might use. Um, And honestly, those days happen. Those are probably four out of every seven days is just days where I'm thinking about what's going to go on. Um, I, I've been, I've been better at trying to like, you know, even on those days getting, you know, 500, a thousand words, you know, down, I, uh, I tend to think in terms of my own ability to write, uh, I tend to think of about 3000 words as a full day's work. Um, and, uh, you know, like yesterday I did, um, 4,500 words in about three hours. Uh, and, uh, and it was late at night. Um, and I kind of felt, and I just kind of got in the groove and I just did it. And um, in other days, you know, you struggle to get, you know, 200 words of the notes down. Uh, it's just sometimes, sometimes the narrative clicks and it just flows like super easily. Um, and, uh, and those are the days that I really enjoy writing. And I kind of save myself up for those days. You know, like there, there's a lot of authors who will force themselves to write 500 words a day, no matter what, doesn't matter how they're feeling or whatever problems they've got in their personal lives or anything like that. And I have a huge amount of respect for that kind of consistency, but I have found that I cannot do it. You know, like there are just, sometimes I need to just say, you know what? I am taking this week off from physical writing. I'm still going to. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Run my business. I'm still going to do the things necessary for me to make a living, but it's not going to be the physical act of writing. Um, and that, uh, and that's a weird place. Like, I, like I was saying, because I, I came from an early part of my career where the physical act of writing was work. That was the only thing I considered work. And, and now I, I'm a lot, uh, I'm a lot gentler with myself on that <laughs> of saying, you know what, the physical act of writing doesn't actually take you very long. You know, you can write a huge amount in small periods of time. If you've lined it all up in your head and you have the narratives working properly for yourself and uh and so i think i spend a lot more time thinking about stuff thinking about the narratives thinking about trying to make it work and paradoxically it means i actually write a lot more which i think is where this thing of rewriting especially in this the glass immortals has come from is that i'm 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 paradoxically so much more forgiving of myself that i actually get more done well a lot of authors uh, you know, can give out some of the best writing advice that they want to give, but on a little twist, would love to hear what's the worst advice that you've ever been given for writing. Oh man, the worst that, that I've ever given myself or been. Oh given? no, what you've got? What's the worst oh. writing advice that you've you have been given? And what was their name specifically and address? <laughs> and tell us everything about the person. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you know what? I don't know. I that that's really tough. Yeah, like I think as I as I kind of get older and I'm in this career for a longer period of time, I tend to and I maybe I actually feel this way about the world as a large, not just the writing career. Um, but I tend to think there are no absolutes. Um, you know, some advice is great for some people, some advice is the worst for other people. Um you know, for me personally, there is a there is a style of writer and artist, um, general creative, who says, uh, never worry about making money from your art. You know, just do your art and maybe the money will come afterwards. Maybe you'll make a living. And I tend to feel quite poorly about that type of advice mm-hmm. um, because I do this for a living. I, I literally have no other skills. Um, I have to know that I have to know, I have to have a pretty good idea that my story that I'm working on is going to pay the mortgage for a period of my life. Um, and, and so, and, and that's kind of how I approached things from the very beginning of my career was this needs to be a living for me. You know, I don't want to work as a fry cook for my less, the rest of my life. I don't want to work unskilled labor, you know, doing crappy jobs that I hate. I really need to make this work. And I, and I do, and I still, you know, it's, I've been in this uh, career for, I've been published for almost 10 years. And so in the career for probably around 12 now. And I think about that all the time. I, I need to make sure that I'm making money from my writing because otherwise I'm screwed. (laughs) My whole lifestyle will be destroyed. (laughs) I won't be able to make my mortgage. I'll go back to, you know, crappy writing or crappy jobs. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so I tend to think that I tend to think that that the financial side of being an artist needs to be something that you think about and that you uh, really kind of internalize if you want to make a living from it. 
you have this great story about how you got published. If you want to dive into that for our viewers on that initial offer you were given and your intro into the publishing industry, can you share that story? Oh, man. Um, this is one of those things is I've told this story so many times that I'm sure that I change yeah. details because your memory gets weird <laughs> as you get older. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so I apologize because this story has probably been recorded a dozen times now. Uh, but I apologize to anybody who's like, this doesn't sound right. Um, okay, so I uh, got published. Um, so I wrote Promise of Blood. Um, I want to say it was the it was in 2010. Um, I think I wrote so I wrote Promise of Blood and I uh, sent it out on Query. And I, I was incredibly fortunate because I sent out a single batch of queries. I think it was 17 queries or something like that. Um, and uh, and I got two offers of representation from just that small batch of queries, which I was very, I'm very, this is me bragging. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Um, also, I have noted here was 15 queries. So you changed your story already. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I think I've, I heard you say 15, 20, 50. Th- <laughs> All right. So 17 queries. Yeah. All right, so the details the details are funny. <laughs> it's been over a decade. Uh, but so I did this. So I, I uh, got two offers of representation, and one of those offers came from the agent that I genuinely wanted. Like, she was, like, the top agent for me. Um, and uh, and so I ended up taking her. This is Caitlin Blaisdell of uh, Lisa Dawson Associates. She's awesome. We've worked together ever since. Um and uh, and so so I took this offer and it was very funny because I think I was I was maybe 24 at the time, something like that. And uh, and my my agent, after I said yes to her, we had our first serious business call and she said, OK, Brian, um, you're uh, clearly talented, but you're also very young and need work. So we're going to work on this book. And, uh, and she made me do rewrites uh, for large sections of the book for probably about nine months. And I think this whole, the whole summer I was unemployed. And, you know, you're a poor kid, barely out of college, no real skill set. And I don't know, how, how old are you guys? We're 24, I'm, 25. I'm 25. Yeah. 24, okay, 25. So you, yeah. guys, you guys don't remember how like millennials got totally screwed by the economy in 2008, 2009. Um, everybody who graduated right around then was just absolutely screwed. You know, you get out with a, a crappy English degree in that economy and you were just, Oof. you could not get a job nowhere. Nobody wanted you. Um, so that was a very rough time because I'm like, Caitlin, you said that this is good and I can sell it, but we're, we're doing rewrites and, and, and on, honestly, like, you know, at that point, I'm not making money for her. So I wasn't her priority. So, you know, I would do a rewrite of seven or eight chapters, send it to her. And then it would take her three months to get back to me. Um, and uh, and then eventually one day she finally said, this is very good. I'm going to send it out. And she gave me the whole agent spiel, which is basically, look, you don't hold your breath. This can take months. It can sometimes take years. I have a lot of confidence in this book, but that being said, it's still possible it doesn't sell, but we're going out. Just forget we had this conversation and go back to your normal life. And like two weeks later, <laughs> we got an offer. And uh, and and the offer was for $100,000 for three books. 
And you got to imagine when you're this poor college student with no prospects, <laughs> hearing those numbers, you suddenly go like your brain explodes. Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I are dancing around our little <laughs> tiny apartment and we're like so happy. And I get on the phone with Caitlin and uh, and I said, OK, well, so this offer, we're going to accept it. Right. And she goes and she laughed at me and she's like, no, Brian, we're going to get a lot more money than this. Yeah. And <laughs> And I'm like, seriously, like, don't risk this. Right. Um, but she went back and we ended up going to auction. I think it was there was three houses that uh, kind of got involved with this auction. And we ended up um, with an, a very good contract, you know, not the best. You know, like there's bigger contracts that happen all the time. But for a brand new epic fantasy author, very good contract. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so then, um, I, I ended up with Davey, my editor who, uh, I, honestly, I still work with, even though she's at a different publishing house now, she's, she's the one who purchased, uh, the glass immortal series, um, and is my editor now again, uh, with Tor. Um, but I ended up with Davey. We ended up working together really well. Uh, she's great. Um, and, uh, and, and Davey kind of, uh, she had, she kind of worked me through the paces. I did a bunch of rewrites on promise of blood with her as well. Um, just trying to kind of get things, get the narrative right. And, and, um, you'll work out the kinks in my own creative process. Uh, and then, yeah. And then it came out almost 10 years ago to a month from now. Yeah. Cause I think it was, I think it was April. It was like April 13th or something like that, 2013. So we're closing in on a decade. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that was basically the very long-winded version of me getting published. That, that's not, I mean, that says something to your skill as a writer that within two weeks you got that response, which is just super awesome and fortunate. And we are called to to ramble. Something you just said there, you said April 13th. This is a complete off topic. April 13th, Return of the Kings, returning to theaters. Just wanted a quick thing to see if, are you a Lord <laughs> of the Rings fan? Are you going to go watch it in theaters? Like, what's the deal here? Honestly, I, I saw that announcement last night. And, yeah, and yeah. I will probably mention it to my wife and see if she's interested. You know, yes. we'll see. We, we both love Lord of the Rings. I, I watched, uh, I went and saw Lord of the Rings in high school. Um, you know, like, I, I think my parents were pretty strict when I was in high school, but like, um, so the idea of leaving from school to go watch a movie, like that was always a no, no, oh, they yeah. let me go for Lord of the Rings. Like they wow. were very cool about it. And, uh, and so, uh, so I do, those movies are fantastic. Yeah. R Richard and I already got the back center seats already locked up at our <laughs> local theater or we're, we're about to have nice. <laughs> it's going to be That's great. great. And we, you know, us being twenty four, twenty five, we couldn't see it in theaters. So this is completely first time yeah. ever for us. Grew up with these movies. Oh, can't wait! Can't wait! Yeah, that's very cool. Absolutely. And uh, I'll leave it to you because I've been asking a lot of questions. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, uh, you were talking about the writing process, and I thought it was interesting that Brandon Sanderson actually said that this was the most Brandon Sanderson book yet. Uh, which I want to hear what you thought about that. Oh, I mean, you know, like I was tickled pink, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's a very cool thing to have somebody like Brandon say, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you, cause Brandon is so incredibly busy, um, that it's very hard to get a hold of him. It's very hard to kind of, uh, nail him down for anything for good reason. Um, and, uh, and so when we sent him, uh, in the shadow of lightning, I genuinely did not expect him to even pick it up. 
and so when I got an email back from him saying, hey, I absolutely love this. This is great. Um, actually, I think it was a text first. I think he texted me and said, hey, I'm going to give you a blurb for this. And like, that was the, that was the text. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then hearing later from him saying very nice things about the book, you know, that, uh, that was very cool, uh, which very funnily, uh, he honestly, he might've been the, one of the very first people after my wife to know about this book. I, yeah. because it, I asked him to go to lunch with me. This was like five years ago, six years ago, maybe. I think it was right after I moved to Utah, which would have been six to seven years ago. And uh, and I said, Brandon, I have never written anything outside of Powder Mage. I've designed this new kind of world. Would you go to dinner with me and chat over the magic system that I've kind of created and this kind of background and all that stuff? And we talked about it. I think it was me, him, and Isaac, his art director, who's a very close friend of mine. Um, I think we talked about it for a good three, four hours and he, you know, we kind of shot ideas back and forth and all that stuff. So Brandon was one of the very first people that knew about this series at all. Um, and, uh, and so very cool to kind of have it come around and him say, Hey, you did a good job on this thing we talked about years right. ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sanderson might have texted you. We've been talking to George R. R. Martin and Joe Abercrombie, you know, they've been texting us on the side. So it's, it's whatever. <laughs> no big deal. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's, it's not that big of a brag because I live in no, Utah right. and I'm I, like, I literally live five minutes up the street from him. Um, mm -hmm. And he's, he's reasonably in, involved in kind of the Utah writer crowd and all right. that stuff. So, yeah. so it's, it's not a huge flex or anything. No, no, no. I, I'm playing with you. Oh, uh, you. You were in his class, of course, right? You were like in the second or third year. Yeah. How's that, how's that transition been from, how did that, I'm just curious how that goes where you were his student and then, becoming more friends with him and more writing colleagues had that kind of feel going from being his student to being a colleague of his well honestly a, a little bit odd you know like i i'm um i've always been quite a shy person uh and so even when i was his student i, I didn't really talk to him that much you know like I, I handed things in and we communicated almost entirely with email and you know when he would give reviews of the section that you handed in stuff like that um and, uh, but then also like, you know, going kind of becoming a professional author um, and going through that, like I always felt incredibly int intimidated because Brandon, you know, when I first met him, he was a brand new author and, and um, excuse me, and he was, uh, he was a brand new author and, but he was published. And so I was this college student down here looking up at Brandon, who's this big author guy now and you know he's making a living from you know books and uh imagine how and, we feel talking to you but okay <laughs> <laughs> but like it, it's like the like the 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 um relative levels of our careers have stayed the same because now i am quite a successful <laughs> author and brandon is you know 50 times more successful than i am and so there's always been this like level of slight intimidation there <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, <laughs> that is pretty funny. Oh, uh, well, Sanderson also recently had this uh, the whole Audible situation where he's releasing some of his um, some of his secret projects and whatnot, not on Audible. I wanted to see what your insight was on the Audible. I, I know we're asking you like AI and all this stuff, but thoughts on the more I guess controversial topic of the Audible situation? Is it controversial? Um, I mean, it's controversial in. I don't think it's actually is that controversial because Audible right. has a monopoly right. and it actually quite sucks. You know, like they, 
even though they're owned by Amazon, Audible has always been way shittier to authors than mm. even Amazon is. Um, and because because Amazon has that, you know, you self-publish through Amazon, you can make 70% of the sticker price. Um, and uh, with Audible uh, and with Amazon, you you kind of always know exactly how much money you're going to make. Um, you can look at all their reports. You can everything's very transparent. Audible, not so much. Audible, they are constantly running um, whatever uh, whatever deal that they've got going on. They you never really know how much money you're actually going to be making from them. You know, even if your contract, I think the best contract they have is you make forty percent of sticker price, but the sticker price depends on what sales they have going on. It depends on, um, uh, it's wow. completely different depending on um, if someone buys your book using a credit than if oh. they do it with cash. Um, it's very, very hard to know anything about what's going on with Audible. And, and that's why Brandon was taking a stance on it because they've got this monopoly where they treat you really crappily um, compared to their own sister company. Uh, and um and that's pretty infuriating. It's always infuriated me, but like, what can I do about it? Like, you know, my, my self-published books, you know, they sell a few thousand copies in Audible. Uh, like I'm not even a drop in a bucket, um, but Brandon actually has serious clout and he's able to like talk about these things without harming his bottom line. Um, and I'm really glad he is because it, it is, it's a problem. It's, it sucks for everybody that works through Audible. Um, because they they're crappy <laughs> and and i say this as someone who does make a little bit of money self-publishing on audible and and my audiobooks that are published through a regular publisher that's mostly audible as well yeah i've i've looked into trying to find alternatives to audible and there are a few out there but it's definitely difficult because so many audible books are under contract and exclusive to audible so the the books that you really want to listen to they just aren't aren't on other platforms and it makes it very difficult to switch over. Yeah. Well, they got in so early, you know, like I, I'm not a hundred percent sure how all the business stuff worked with that, you know, as compared to Amazon's publishing wing. Um, but it did feel like Amazon's publishing wing, they did get in early, but they had competitors very quickly, you know, even though they're still what 90% of, you know, kind of the industry, the ebook industry um there still are other places that have from near the beginning of ebooks you've been able to kind of use and go to and and try something different um i don't think that was the case at all with you know kind of audiobooks i think audible kind of was the thing for so long nobody really competed with them and uh and now you know every anybody who is trying to compete with them is so late to the race now you know trying to get something going is really hard. And you made the point that this is a business for you. So that advice of, hey, don't think of writing as also business, but it's how you make your living. Does that ever, obviously it affects it in some way, but how much does it affect whether you decide to write a novella and spend your time doing that, which makes a lot less money than your powder or even the glass of morals as well. So that's going to make you a lot more money, obviously. So how does that affect how you spend your time writing certain series? Um. <laughs> I'll be totally honest. Yeah. My novellas 
per hour make me a lot more money than my novels do. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. I, I had the wrong assumption entirely. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is that I, I tend to only write novellas when I have a fully realized idea in my head. Um, and I can sit down and do all the work in like two weeks. Oh. Um, I, I think that my novella, I think most of my novellas, I think all of them have taken less than two months of total work time right. to kind of complete and take care of and all that uh, with Montego. I mean, I'll, I'll let you kind of do the math on it, but Montego, the Kickstarter, I think hit $36,000. And I'm going to guess that it took me oh maybe four solid work weeks you know 40 hour work weeks to do all of montego to get everything done and um and so you know thirty six thousand dollars you know, you take a lot out of that for shipping and stuff like that but even you know twenty five thousand dollars that is a very good month um but i can't do that all the time you know like i said i like to do these things when i'm ready to make it happen quickly uh and you know i don't have i don't i don't have an infinite amount of you know great ideas to throw little novellas out um all the time i would kind of love that because that's a great <laughs> income uh but but yeah it's you know but like like the the gigantic novels they're still my bread and butter because that's what that's what people really latch on to and they love mm. and 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 so so once I've established a universe, I can make some extra money from it by doing these novellas. And I I find it quite fulfilling. It's a fun thing to do side stories to explore other characters. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's you know, once I've established this universe, that's one of the ways that I kind of monetize it is by uh, is by doing these little extra things. Yeah, I didn't even think about the ROI if it takes so little time in the grand scheme of things. So it makes that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Richard, you want to go into a quick segment here of mm -hmm. we have some patron questions to to ask you directly from our so on our Patreon, we had in the Shadow of Lightning, we read it for the book club of the month. And we let our patrons and we couldn't ask all their questions, of course. We we picked the best of you. No, we, we actually got a question <laughs> from most people. So uh Richard, you want to ask the first one from our patron Jangled? Yeah, so uh, Jangled wanted to ask you, if you had to pick one, which god glass would you personally want? Ooh. Um, oh, that's tough. Uh, that's really tough. There's like, because, I mean, the, the idea with god glass, I'll try to actually be quick about these, but um, the idea with god glass is basically that each one um, enhances a human being's natural trait in some way. Um, it makes them stronger and faster, or it makes them think quicker. Um, kind of like, uh, there's, there's lots going on there. Um, I, honestly, probably cure glass, cure glass uh. enhances your natural healing. Um, and because it's a fantasy world, I don't put a whole bunch of, uh, uh, asterisks after that, you know, it just cure glass takes care of you. Um, and I, I've got rheumatoid arthritis, uh, where my, my own, um, you know, maybe this is actually too complicated, uh, but you know, my, my body actually attacks itself, uh, mm -hmm. because of this illness I have this hereditary illness. And, uh, and you know, if going off of the rules of cure glass, how awesome would it be if I could just spend, you know, an afternoon in a in a, a healing house and I don't have rheumatoid arthritis anymore? You know, it fixes all my joints 
uh, it, nothing hurts anymore, all that stuff. I, I think that's like the best quality of life answer. Um, but honestly, any of them are awesome. Uh, it, the, the, the idea of forge glass, you know, making you stronger, faster, um, uh, making your body sturdier, um, you know, wit glass probably would, uh, well, I, wit glass would probably help me write, but also, um, uh, I just forgot what it's called. Cause I think it only comes up like once in the book. Um, there's a God glass that enhances creativity. I've, I've got an, I've got it in my notes somewhere. I think I do only mention it once. Um, but the, the, the idea with God glass is that there are hundreds of God glasses. There's like only like a handful of really common ones that everybody uses, but the, there's all these different mixtures and, um, you know, kind of lets me as an author, just pluck cool ideas out mm. when I need them. Mm. Um, maybe a little bit of a writing hack. Uh, but yeah, so I'll just stop rambling and say cure glass. Well, hey, I mean, you're at the right place to ramble. Ramble. That's what we do here, to <laughs> ramble. And I do like that about God Glass, that it, it enhances. It doesn't make everyone the same, right? It just enhances your actual abilities. So that, well, that's neat. Well, with like somebody like Idrian, um, you know, Idrian is naturally a very athletic, powerful person. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he is such an effective breacher is because the Forge Glass that they give him makes his natural athleticism so much better that's why he's faster and stronger than most any of his enemies is because he already is kind of a bit in real life and then that's accentuated by the forge glass absolutely and we have another question from our patron andy who is asking you where does the inspiration for your characters come from which we touched on very slightly but if you want to elaborate more Oh man, uh, the, we could talk about this for like two hours. Uh, <laughs> it comes from everywhere. I, I like right. to pluck little things from um, uh, mostly media that I consume. Um, it tends to be TV these days. Um, you know, it used to be a lot more books, but like I've, we've already mentioned, I don't read as much as I used to. Um, but uh, for characters, it tends to be. I tend to take little pieces of characters I like in other settings. Um, and I think most authors do this, where you say, oh, this character is, is really fastidious about a particular thing. That would be fun to do with this other character that I've been kind of designing on the side. You know, there's a lot of that where you're just plucking little bits from things you find cool and trying to make it work. Uh, more specifically, where did the inspiration for Demir, your main character, for In the Shadow of Lightning come from? Um, Demir, I uh, honestly, a lot of that came from a lot of that came from listening to the Revolutions podcast. Um, I listened. So the Revolutions podcast is this great podcast where each season where they go really in depth about each about uh, a single revolution. Um, and when I was really doing most of the design work for the world of Glass Immortals, I was uh, listening to the French Re Revolution, which I already had a pretty good knowledge about, you know, like it was a huge inspiration for Powder Mage. Um, but the, the podcast kind of let me into the nitty gritty a lot more um, than I had kind of even been aware of. And I became fascinated by these kind of larger than life characters that you run into over the course of the French Revolution, some of which, you know, like kind of, you know, kind of made their way through the whole thing, others of which were executed very quickly. Um, 
but I'm very interested by these thinkers, these people whose whole existences kind of poured passion into trying to create a better society. And, uh, and I think Demir comes a lot from that, this idea of someone who um, he, he's really, he's, he's politically very brilliant. He has these amazing instincts for how to govern and how to handle, um, he's actually a very good people person. Um, which, which I'm not funny enough. Um, but he, I like, I, I love this idea of a political thinker who, um, who was a, like a maverick at what he did. Like he, he is, uh, he is ready and willing to kind of push new ideas uh, and, you know, kind of disrupt things. Um, but also as you know, anybody knows who's read the prologue of the first book, he had a mental breakdown uh, and uh, completely destroyed like everything about him. Um, and then, so then we get this character for the rest of the book who is uh, a former genius, uh, you know, f- like very well known as a genius um, whose life just completely broke apart almost a decade before the events of the actual novel. And now he's trying to kind of, you know, reconstruct that. And, and figure out how he goes forward having, you know, suffered this massive trauma in his early life and then a new trauma of his mother being murdered right at the beginning of the main book. Um, but also carrying around the weight of this reputation for having been this absolute genius. Like he was a, he was a governor of a province at 14. Like this, he was a kid genius and uh, I don't know. I, I just I love uh, like the like lots of different ideas go into somebody like Demir, um, but uh, kind of that's that's basically where he came from. Is is the thinkers that kind of push you through a real life revolutionary period? Okay. And uh, we have another question here from Raffle, and he wanted to know what is something in your writing that you're really proud of that you know you do well. And something that you know you need to improve on. Oh man, I I do action very well, uh, and and this I have not made any secret that I'm I'm quite proud of my action. I I I'm I'm pretty good at balancing very cool action scenes that don't drag on too long, so that they don't bore the reader to tears. You know, because that does it, action endless action generally bores people eventually. Um, you know, like. The, the the exception that proves the rule is Mad Max Fury Road, um, oh, and it's it's one of my favorite movies ever. Yes, uh, and, yes, and it, but like so. Anyways, not to digress. It, yeah, so I, I'm I'm quite good at doing action. Um, I, I tend to default to action, maybe too much. You know, we talked about this earlier with my struggles with writing Tessa, um, and uh, and I the the thing that I I. I have very little experience with, and I don't think I do that well in any of the texts that I've written is romance. Um, I, I've got a close friend. She's a huge uh, romantic fantasy author, uh, Charlie Holmberg. And I honestly, I whenever I'm working on something that's romance, I'm always texting her and I'm like, how do I do this? Like, how do I make this work? Right. Like it just doesn't, I'm not good at it. I really would like to be better at it. Um, and, uh, and honestly, and you know, it's, it's a it's a very particular skill set that I think a lot of people that don't read romance kind of look down on. Um, 
but also romance is like what like 50 percent of the fiction market uh so so clearly um it is in high demand and it's not something i have a good skill set for well it's definitely the trope of the fantasy genre it tends to be that the romance aspect is typically not as well developed or at least not as practiced (laughs) right and you get i don't know i mean it's uh, there's a lot to talk about there and i and i don't say any of this critically like this is just stuff you're trying to work through as you're um kind of dealing with these things uh epic fantasy a lot of us are kind of you know awkward neck beards you know We don't know how to make this stuff work like in real life. So how are we going to make it work on the page? Uh, and and so, yeah, so you just and I think that that's maybe the the history of, you know, romance in fantasy, especially epic fantasy that we all like grew up, you know, that people, especially like in the 90s, grew up reading um, a lot of and go, oh, my gosh, how was that OK? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you, so you try to work through this. Yeah, we've got just one last patron question for you. This is from our patron Curtis, and mind you, he does know this is Brian McClellan, not George R. R. Martin. But he wanted to ask you when is Winds of Winter coming out? For, for some reason, <laughs> just, uh, I, I don't know. He's he's interested. <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> right, great way to add that. And as as uh inspired from your podcast again you usually end with the question of what was the last great meal you had so we mm-hmm. wanted to put a little we thought of something this is the best we could come up with but what was the last compliment you got that really stuck with you oh man the last compliment gosh i don't know I've got such a poor self-esteem. I don't really remember compliments. Um, That's why I thought it might have been a bad question because me thinking about it, I couldn't think of one either. Well, here, I'll I'll, get, I'll throw one to you. Throw it to him, Richard. I'll throw you a compliment. When I first read your uh, Powder Mage trilogy, the, fir- the first three books, I, I was real ripping ready to go into the second trilogy. And then I read that Vlora was going to be a main character. And I was so emotionally attached to Daniel Two Shot. I was like, "I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet. I have, I have to give this a breathing period because I really emotionally connected to that character. That it was really hard to move on to different characters. And so I will be breaking into that into that series next. It's one oh, one next series well, to read. Honestly, that's a thing I have heard a lot. Like that, and I, it was a thing that I was very aware of going into the second trilogy. Um, that uh, a lot of people didn't like Vlora because of the events of the first trilogy. And and honestly, because I kind of have had already lived in her head, just knowing the way she felt about things. You get a bit of it on the page, especially in book two um, in Crimson Campaign. Um, but because I had already lived in her head, I knew her motives. I knew the kind of shame she carried around from being a young, dumb kid. Um, and uh, and so it made me really want to write her. It made me want to put her on the page as a main character. Um, because people, you know, people do stupid things. And, and because someone does a stupid thing that affects your, like the character you fall in love with, it's very easy to hate them. And, and I get that. But also, I really wanted to jump in and say, look, Laura's like her own human being. There's a lot more complicated emotional stuff going on there than we knew about in the first trilogy. 
and and that was very fun to kind of deal with in the second trilogy. Oh, um, certainly, certainly, especially since you know you're seeing Vlora through Taniel's eyes mostly, yeah. and yeah. so you're gonna you're gonna feel a certain way. I, I imagine, of course, when you actually get to be from her POV, you know, you're gonna get absorbed into her uh, her perspective. So yeah, that was something I, I'm looking forward to. That I, now enough time has passed, I I can emotionally get past it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and and it's funny because I do allude to this, I think, in Honor and Republic, but uh, Vlora is actually more of Field Marshal Tomas's heir than Taniel ever was. You know, Taniel went off on his own adventure, and he kind of became this minor celebrity as you know a mercenary practically in a different country. And you know, Vlora is the one that stuck around and learned to command armies and like actually like be a officer rather than just a powder mage. Um, and I so I had always kind of thought of Vlora as Tomas's heir uh, in terms of his career. And uh, and that was the other reason I wanted to kind of follow through on that in Sins of Empire was was seeing what happens to her when she's older and more experienced and. Um, kind of fulfilling this role as a commanding officer. Hmm. Yeah, that that is something to say too. The the whole compliment thing of oh man, what's the last one? I'll end it with this. You, you mentioned neck beards. Listen, the fact that you and Richard are able to grow, I feel a little insecure. Like you guys got great beards, so don't ever say that about yourself. Okay, Brian, it's a great beard. G- great job oh. on the genetics there. Good job, buddy. <laughs> oh no, I am very proud of my beard. My yeah, beard's it's great. Cr- um, it's nice. And also, yeah. do you guys love how I blew past that question of, uh, of the class compliment that was paid to me? Oh, absolutely. I, I wanted. Oh, yeah. to, I, I noticed I just, very something very much that Richard would do too. <laughs> I, I just, I just dodged that. <laughs> well, well, Brian, thank you so much for for coming on the pod. This has been super enjoyable. We're honored. And th- Richard, if you want to sign us off. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys very much for watching. And if you want to go down and comment down below, there'll also be the link to In the Shadow of Lightning in the description below. Let us a comment. What do you guys think? And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. And Brian, if you just want to finish it off with a goodbye, promoting anything that you've got going on, and we'll close it on you. Oh, man. Well, uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure. Um, for people that are uh, f- have not read In the Shadow of Lightning, they can go and read that. That's my latest epic fantasy. Um, the people who have read it uh, and didn't support the Montego Kickstarter, um, they can go pre-order the hardcover from my website. They can get uh, the audio and the ebook from all the normal places, um, and that will be out at the end of May officially. Awesome. All right. That will be on the screen in the description for everybody. Thanks for joining. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.